You're listening to audio from the Village Church, a community that's formed by the gospel and sent on God's mission, gathering weekly in the heart of downtown Hamilton, Ohio. For more information about the village or to connect with us, you can find us online at myvillagechurch.com. Morning, my name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors here. Thanks so much for hanging out with us. With liberty and justice for all. Uh, I'm sure that most of us have said those words a time or two. And if you live in the United States, you probably no doubt heard those words 10,000 times. But what does justice for all actually mean? And I don't mean that in some nationalistic sense, as we've recited in the pledge a million times, but, but in a cosmic sense. Despite man's attempt to narrow down the meaning or refine its judgment or, or to execute justice properly, God is the one that defines justice. He legislates justice. He judges justice. He executes perfect justice on a cosmic scale and that that funnels all the way down to the finest points of the most insignificant happenings. R.C. Sproul says this, he says, when we talk about someone owing someone else, we are talking about indebtedness or obligation. Everyone who has ever lived knows something about that. Either we owe someone or someone owes us. When we are the ones in debt, mercy and grace are very appealing concepts. When someone owes us, those concepts lose some of their luster and justice becomes more appealing. Our fallen human nature has a way of tilting the scales in, on our behalf. What does the sovereign God of the universe owe you, he asks. This is surprisingly helpful to consider as we jump into a text or, or more likely uh, a series of sermons preached by God's prophet Micah to God's people who were a divided kingdom. And what we begin to see is they were divided in more ways than one. He preached this 2,700 plus years ago and he was preaching God's justice that it would come to them because of their injustice to one another. This is God's people. So the hearers, they misgauge who it is that God is bringing justice to, and, and they misgauge who it is that God is bringing justice against. When justice lives in the abstract, or, or it's defined by created beings rather than the creator of all beings, it's always going to be marred. It's always going to be stained. It's always going to have a bias. It's, it's always going to be slanted or slighted, even despite our best intentions. I learned a little trick in high school business class that proved the point. There were two friends next to me. I, I've come back to this many times as, as a dad, right? And, and, and I pointed back to this many times. Um, there were two friends. They wanted to, to share a piece of chewing gum, just a stick of gum, and, and they were arguing over who was going to tear the gum, and my teacher just real quickly, he said, you tear, you choose, and it was like, hold on, what? And he was like, you tear, you choose, and so one of them would tear it, and the other one would choose which one 
each other got. And so what would have been one person, the one with the gun, the one with the power, tearing it and looking quickly and just giving it away, suddenly becomes a matter of, of getting out a ruler. And, and millimeters now matter because I don't want to make one bigger than the other because they're obviously going to take the bigger one. So it was an, an equalizer, right? It was, it was justice in the, in the form of, of a stick of chewing gum. In matters of chewing gum, these truths, they, they mean very little. But in the way that we all get to live and interact, certainly as God's church, the way that we get to move to engage in decisions, in business, in relationships, in property, in power, in, in wealth, in the way that we build, in the way that we contribute, the way that we vote, the way that we tear down systems and societal structures, in, in those ways... Matters of justice, they mean a great deal, right? As a huge caveat. And to help those who are fearful of words like social justice, and you're just waiting for it to, to drip off of my tongue, or, or those who are afraid of words like racial justice or, or economic justice or the Justice League or, or any other outlet of justice, or to those who are ignorant of the landmines within the church around those ideas. And, and those terms can get you in trouble in today's culture, right? Because they're loaded. So, so I'm going to offer a little bit of, of help. God is the beginning and the end of justice, period. So, so no, there is no social justice that is separate from the only justice which flows from the heart and the finger of God. Or as David Taylor says, he says, there's no generic idea of justice. There's only God's idea of justice. But again, just like we looked at last week, to say that justice doesn't impact, to say that it doesn't trickle down, to say that it doesn't come to bear in society, in, in real spheres, in real places, that leaves justice as an idea with no legs, as a, as a construct with no outlet. So there is an ethic to justice within our economy, within racial lines, within the social and societal uh, structures that we live in. Y you bet there are. But, but the kicker for us is that we don't begin with society. As God's people, we don't begin with race. We don't begin with any other outlet, but we begin with God and His justice. And we let His justice flow from our heads to our hearts through our hands. And when it does, when that happens, it changes things. Uh, real things with real impact in real lives, in real communities. That's what God's justice does. So I get the culture war at, at every turn around this stuff. But if you hear of the plight of the oppressed and you, you see someone engaging that plight and you walk away caught up in the language of the battle, uh, rather than being compelled to fight where, where you see injustice, to fight for justice, then you might be missing the point. So we don't get to get caught up in all of that stuff. We get, to, we get to understand who God is, understand what he brings to bear on his people, and we get to live in light of that. God's justice brings warning, relief, and hope. 
And in Micah chapter 2 today, we're just teasing that main idea out, right? That God's justice brings warning, relief, and hope. And, and we're going to see it in three ways. And the first point is infinitely longer than the other two. But it goes like this. God's justice brings warning to the oppressor, relief for the oppressed, and hope for the remnant. So the first thing here, again, Micah chapter 2, we're looking at this, that God's justice brings warning for the oppressor. And so I'm just going to read verse 1, and, and we'll, we'll start there. Woe to those who devise wickedness. And this isn't like a woe. This is like a, like a woe. Like it's an indictment. It's, it's coming against, all right? Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it. Because it is in the power of their hand. There is so much stuff. Just in this one verse, there are, there are those who, they contrive evil. They, they lay in their beds and they think of wicked schemes, right? That's what they do in their free time. They're schemers. So they contrive evil. And then he says they do evil when the day breaks. They wake up. They thought of it at night. They wake up. They get out of bed. And they, they enact injustice. They do evil. Why? Because they have the power to use evil for their gain. They are both Tearing the gum and giving it away. That's who do these things. There are many factors of oppression, but maybe the most significant is this. It's power. There have to be powers, relational or, or structural or whatever, in place to accommodate the evil. So what are some of the benchmarks that flow through the powers of oppression? Well, Micah, he tells us in, in We'll read on in verse 2. Verse 2, he says, They covet fields and seize them, and houses, and take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. Again, there is a load of stuff in there. He says, they covet. Uh, and and that's, a, that's a real swift jab, right? He, he knows what he's saying when he's doing that. To covet is to want something that isn't ours. And specifically, God's people live under God's law at this time. And specifically in the Ten Commandments, do not covet and do not steal what isn't yours. Don't want it. Don't want what your neighbor has. And don't take what your neighbor has that isn't yours. So, so they covet, which is a, a covenant breach from the heart, rebellion against God. They seize fields. They take houses. They oppress and, and what that means, it means to, to press down. There, there's weight upon. It means to violate or defraud or to do violence or to gain deceitfully, to wrong, to extort. They oppress a man and his house and his inheritance. That is a big deal. This is very vivid. It's very visual. He's using personal examples there's economic injustice which flows from the heart of those devising and working wickedness with generational impact. So, so to take a man's house and inheritance, that's quite different than taking a man's wallet. Right? One uh, makes him have a bad day or a bad week, and the other impacts his kids and grandkids. And what Mike is saying, he's coming at them He's saying by oppressing, by oppressing uh, these people, they're stealing from their kids. It's, it's generational. And who's at risk? The poor and the powerless. 
or as many say today, the, the quartet of the vulnerable that we see in Scripture, the widow, the orphan, the immigrant, and the poor. In, in, in those we see in the, in the Old Testament, predominantly, God vindicate and stand up for those, uh, those people. And, and these accusations, they're not against uh, Assyria that's getting ready to conquer the northern kingdom. These accusations are against God's people. That's the problem, and that's why Micah is speaking. So, so two verses into chapter 2, we see the injustice of the hands of God's people. We see a warning to those who oppress, and it shows up in two very practical and, and very relevant for today ways. And, and one is this, one-to-one personal oppression. This is the idea of, of the slumlord. The bad landlords, the, the business owners, the, the scheming, uh, shady deals, taking what isn't theirs or polishing junk and selling it as if it's new. Blatant villains who nearly anyone could recognize. Or the subtle manipulators who use the law and, and other means to take what isn't theirs and who harm generations of people who don't have voice and influence and power to stop it. So we see the one-to-one personal oppression, but we also see institutional or, or societal oppression. See, the heart of the warning isn't that these people are lawbreakers. That's the problem. Certainly some are. But, but the problem is that they exploit even in line with the law. So, so that, that even acting within the confines of the law, they seek to disadvantage the poor, the powerless, those without a voice, those without an education, those without money, those without a family name, or without an advocate to stand against the structures that make this society work. That's why Micah is speaking to, uh, to the nations, Right At this point, the kingdom divided to the capital cities uh, and not just a person because these injustices, they are baked into the system. They are baked into the structures of society. They, they are baked into a system in which God's people willingly contribute to and benefit from. And worse, they even think it's God's blessing that they deserve and that's, that's what we see, right? So, so economic gain, by no means, is inherently wrong. But to use these practices for economic gain, that is not a reflection of God's nature towards our neighbors or towards the sojourner. So, so this, nor my words, are opposing biblical... Uh, uh, proverbs of how we deal with stuff. It's, it's not opposing hard work. It's not opposing profitable business by any means, but, but the intent to prop ourselves up at the expense of others. So uh, more modern equivalents to this might be historic banking and lending practice, uh, practices that, that discriminate based on what a person looks like or based on what part of town they're from, uh, this is the idea of redlining that, that hopefully you've, you've heard about at this point, or that, that you've been, uh, in the 1950s, uh, if you were a realtor, right, a realtor, 
that you would be fired. This is on the books that you'd be fired if you sold a home to a black family in a white neighborhood. On the books 70 years ago. So, so you look at that and you see the same injustice that we're talking about. Right? Was it legal? Yes. Was it right? Absolutely not. Or, or buy here, pay here. Uh, check advance businesses or, or credit card systems often found in poorer neighborhoods by design today uh, that offer temporary relief at the expense of circles and cycles of, of long-term oppression through high interest rates that prey on the poor, that prey on the powerless. Is it legal? You bet it is. Is it right? Absolutely not. So if, then, there is a field of employment that forces your hand, right, for us who are in Christ, to make calculated manipulations that that benefit you or that benefit the employer at the expense of your neighbor, this is uh, the New Testament equivalent of the way that we read about tax collectors, then maybe that's not wise for God's people to serve in. Or at best, if we are in those, then, then it's worthy of redemption in the way that we get to engage that sector. And if in any of that, your initial question is, well, okay, Michael, but, but who is my neighbor? As if to say that there are parts of human society that aren't worthy of just dealings, then hear me when I tell you this, this warning is for you. We who are in Christ, we don't get to search for loopholes to justify, uh, because in Christ we get to search for loopholes to go the extra mile, uh, rather than cheat others out of of the wear and tear of, of our own, right? We get to fight through the gray of left and right, and culturally acceptable, and culturally detestable, and we get to celebrate where justice is brought to bear, and where human equity and equality lives, and we get to oppose the places where it doesn't live. Or, if our business, or if our community, or if our country booms economically, and that comes at the expense of the marginalized, right? And, and I said at the expense of, so, so don't insert what I'm not saying there. We count that a loss. To gain financially at the expense of a shared human dignity is an L all day long. It is not a W. It is not a win for those who are in Christ. So, so that's gauging success by the wrong currency. And that's exactly what Micah is coming against. That's profiting from the work of the harlot, just like he tells us at the end of chapter 1. So, as the chapter unfolds, we see loads of benchmarks for the, the accusation against oppressor. And we don't have time to, to, to read all this. We read the focal passage. I encourage you to read over this chapter. But, but he says they covet, they scheme, they, they're thieves, they have selfish gain at the expense of the vulnerable, they have evil thoughts, evil acts, they take what they want, they push down generations, evicting women from their homes, but they also reject God's word, which is why they do what it is that they do. 
they suddenly think that God has changed sides if he is opposing them. But they miss completely. They miss the, the, the whole idea of what God is doing with them. God has never been for your injustice against the vulnerable. And Micah is deconstructing their arguments, just as Paul does. And so he's quoting them as he relates to the preachers, like in verse 6, Do not preach, thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Micah, how dare you say such things? We're God's people, don't you know? Should this be said, O house of Jacob, has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Do not my words do good to him? Who walks uprightly? No way. God would certainly not confront us, his people, as you are, Micah. Has he flipped sides? Has he turned against us suddenly? Ah, yes, he was never on your side. But he was always on the side of justice. He was always the defender of the poor, the deliverer of the oppressed, the voice to the voiceless, the good shepherd protecting his fold and seeking the wayward. Your problem is that you had a God, this is Micah to these people, your problem is that you had a God who affirmed your every action, and you called it blessing. But the one true God, he's not impressed by your pride, by your money, by your power, by your influence as the townspeople are, as the city folk are. Which is why he's rising up guys like Isaiah and Micah to proclaim this truth so that they might turn, that they might repent. Man, time doesn't allow, but, but if there was ever a warning of old that sits in our living rooms today, it's this indictment against these seeking after these preachers who preach what they want to hear. In times like these, you can find a thousand jokers spewing foolish hatred or irrelevant fluff masquerading as preachers of Christian doctrine or blessing at the expense of a sinless Savior who had to die so that our sin, our real egregious sin, might be acquitted. Right? If, if the voice that you listen to doesn't tell you that, that's a problem. So they reject God's word, and that leads to all sorts of wicked. But do you know what must exist for there to be an oppressor? The oppressed. And God is not unaware in his execution of justice. This is the second point. Relief. God's justice brings relief for the oppressed. Uh, let me read verses. Uh, I'll come to that in a second. Uh, Stephen Um says this in his commentary, Micah, for you. He says, This is the reality of the poor that not many of us are exposed to on a daily basis. To be poor is not automatically to be lazy or dependent, despite the stereotypes. But to be poor is, in most places, and at most times, to be stuck without the ability to chase a dream or entertain realistic hope. If that were your life, then Micah 2, 3, and 4 
would be a breath of fresh air to you. Because it will be a shimmering hope in the distance. It would be a picture of power that you did not know you could ever have dreamed of. It would be a pointer to a God who does not oppress you and will not stand to see you oppressed. And this is that. Uh, Verses 3, Therefore says the Lord, Behold, against this family I am devising disaster from which you cannot remove your necks. And you shall not walk haughtily, for it will be a time of disaster. In that time they shall take up a taunt song against you and moan bitterly and say, We are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people. Right? So there's going to be people singing at the oppressor's expense. And they're going to be crying out, God, you flipped the script on us. Because we had the power. Because we were the ones. And he removes it from me to an apostate. He allots our fields. Therefore, you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. Look, I know I've said this before. But in in all but one of the Spider-Man scenarios where Peter Parker, young Peter Parker, he's at high school or whatever, and he's trying to figure out what it looks like to be a superhero. Um, there, there's always a scene that demonstrates his humanity, and, and it's often like in the lunchroom, and somebody takes his tray or, or spits on his stuff or, or hits him with his tray. And when that happens, uh, me and, and my kids and my family, we're literally watching just just we're hating it. We're seeing him get picked on, and he has all the power to overtake his enemies, and yet he doesn't. And I'm screaming at the TV, turn the tables, Peter, flip the script, enact justice, let them know who you are, and make them pay for who they are. And he doesn't. And I hate it. His identity remains hidden. His weakness and his shame remains so that he can fight the bigger fight on behalf of those who can't fight their own battles. But that doesn't mean that victims will be oppressed forever. Nope. Relief is at hand. And that's the the hope that Micah Gives. There is a day coming uh, in context of Samaria and Jerusalem and, and to us today, God is planning a disaster. And an inescapable disaster from which you cannot remove your necks for those who oppress And while they have taken land not their own, God will redistribute their fields in their mind to an apostate. And and while we don't see in this passage the relief for the oppressed, because, because the warning is against the oppressor, it's implied everywhere. When you suffer unjustly at the hand of the wicked, and there is no one you can call, God is not blind, he is not silent, and it may not come today or, or to Peter Parker in the cafeteria, but rest assured, my yoke 
is easy and my burden is light. And so too are yours for all who yoke themselves to the redemption offered only in Jesus. To the, to the identity offered only in Jesus. What identity is that? That, that God might call us his. You who labor at injustice, your inheritance in God's kingdom will be removed. It was God's allotment to begin with that you stole and that you sold, and it's God's allotment that will revoke your land in the end. God is taking the inheritance of the wicked, and he's bringing relief to the oppressed. And this takes us to the last point. God's justice brings hope for the remnant. Man, if you've spent any time reading through this book, Micah, on your own, you might just scratch your head a lot, and I want you to, I want you to know that, that I do the same thing. And, and as staff, as, as we kick around, like, what's here? And, and I talk to a preaching kind of development team each week, and we, we talk about this, and, and it's like, you're just like, huh? You're just trying to figure it out. But, but as we learn to, to uh, discover and interpret um, prophetic books Properly, all prophetic books, they have these three themes in common. Sin, judgment, and hope. In some of them, the hope is hard to find. But I love this idea of God's remnant that he talks about. I, I love the, the countless, just terrible, uh, apocalyptic uh, end-of-the-world movies where, where only a few humans exist and they have to rebuild society. I love those things. And that's the idea here, uh, except there, there aren't only a few people left, but, but only a few of God's people left within a huge culture and a, and a, a growing world around them. So, so God's people at times, as we read through, it goes from tribe, uh, family to tribe to nation to kingdom. It swells. And then at times it shrinks down to only a few faithful, and then it swells to be the church, right? Uh, so God sustains the remnant of faithful to rebuild and to, to carry on and to carry out the story of God and man. But, but how, how does he do that? In a world so unfaithful, so wicked, so confused, well, we see a, a glimmer, a shimmer of hope in verses 12 and 13. He says, I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate, going out by it. Their king passes on before them the Lord at their head. Look, what this, what this says is, there are sheep in a fold, and they're being oppressed. And there's a shepherd king. He breaks down the gate, and he says, come with me. And he leads them away from the oppression. He leads them away from the captor. And, and what we see in this, it says, the shepherd will burst through the breach to free them and there's a noisy multitude. So what he's saying is, everyone's around and the shepherd comes in and there's cheering. And the noisy multitude is, is a party. It's celebration at the liberation that this shepherd king is bringing. And, 
And we are, gosh, two-thirds through the Bible when we see for the first time this idea of shepherd and king in the same line. Uh, one one uh, of the first where we see this, but, but a foreshadow of the greater shepherd, the good shepherd Jesus, and the greater king Jesus who reigns, and the, and the prophet, and the priest, and all of these things. So the primary benchmark of the remnant of God's people is that it holds to truth. They behold what is true. They walk with God. They follow their king as he passes before them. And so, by God's grace and by their faithfulness birthed through that grace, God sustains them. He maintains the remnant of the faithful. One of those potentially terrible movies that I talked of, the apocalyptic end of the world, this, uh, there, there's a movie called Snowpiercer. I think there's a show coming out, so I won't give away any spoilers, but it's called Snowpiercer, and the idea is that all of humanity is stuck on a train. I know, I know, right? And, um, and there's snow everywhere, and they can't escape, because if they do, they'll surely die. And, and what we find out as the movie kind of unfolds is, is uh, there are systems at play. In the very back, would you go figure that the very back, it's the, it's the lowliest of lowly, right? And so it's the poorest of poor. Those who have been oppressed since birth on the train. Um, and, so, and, and then on the very front, those who drive are those that have, what, power, right? And, and they live like, literally live like kings. And what we see in the movie is, is that there's a, a last car guy. Uh, he's a heroic type. And he fights his way to all the way to the first car. And there's this, this scene, and you think the end is going to be swift and clear, but it's not. What happens when, when the guy who's been oppressed his whole life, him and a team of people help him get to the first car, and they encounter the, the one driving, the one with all the power. And as the guy classically pours him a drink and all those things, casually and cavalierly, he doesn't do what you think he does. He offers him the position of power. And what he goes on to tell him is that he has indeed orchestrated even the revolt to get this guy from the back of the train all the way to the front. He offers him the power. The one who has been oppressed his entire life now has the opportunity to lead the oppression. Right? A great gig for himself. A bad lot for all of those in the back of the car. And you see um, in that, we, we see that it's a challenge and it's a struggle. And he gives it thought and you don't know what he's thinking. And all of his problems become someone else's problems. He would live the lush life for the first time in his life. We see in that uh, the same temptation that, that Jesus, that, that, that Satan tried to tempt Jesus with when he said, look, all of this can be yours. We see in this, the human tension emerges. Listen to my words. Was the problem injustice? Or that he was on the wrong side of injustice? See, I think that's our problem. Are we upset at injustice? Or to R.C. Sproul's uh, quote at the beginning of this sermon, are, are we upset at the injustice or that we're on the wrong side of injustice? The reason the remnant 
can navigate through this appeal is that they understand that the identities of the players in this monopoly game of life, they are not oppressed and oppressor. That is not the identity of these people, but that those are actions of the fallen, actions of of the wicked, actions of sin taking root in fallen individuals who may make up fallen systems and fallen nations and actions of fallen creation where brokenness has its way. They understand their identity is in the one who overcame the world, Not not in anything that this world can offer them. If our greatest hope to overcome the cruelty of this world is to become the oppressor, then hear me, brother. We have a shallow hope. To propose uh, a simple flip isn't the answer. It isn't enough to simply flip the script, but Christ, the one with all the power in the universe, he came to lay it down to the point of death, to give both oppressor and oppressed hope and life. So this warning is grace. This relief is grace. And the hope is the same for both. That the the only one suited to, to dish justice took injustice so that we might be his and that we might live justly. Their king passes on before them the Lord at their head. Who is the remnant? All who follow the king. If you have oppressed, there is no better news than the grace of this warning you have received today. If you have been oppressed, there is no better way to walk than to lean into relief that comes from God and to forgive a forgiveness that equalizes Injustice, and not by you becoming the oppressor, but by Christ being oppressed. That is our hope, so that we might share in the hope of eternal relief. That's where freedom comes from. God's justice brings warning, relief, and hope. And I want to close out by just showing a quick video before the band comes up. Would you join me in watching this? The gospel unleashes in the world a commitment not to live for justice, but to live for more than justice. Justice is minimalist. A life devoted to treating people as they deserve is, a, is not a Christian life. God in the gospel treated us better than we deserve. That's not justice. We don't get justice in the gospel. God got justice in the gospel. We don't get justice in the gospel. We get grace. And he unleashes on the world a people in churches and then spilling over out of churches who treat each other way beyond justice. You you shouldn't walk through the day or through your life thinking, how can I be just? How can I be just? How can I be just? You should walk through the worst. How can I be gracious? How can I be loving? How can I be kind? How can I love my enemy? How can I go the extra mile? How can I, when I am sued to go one mile, go two miles? When I'm sued to get my coat, give him my cloak as well. The, The gospel unleashes 
way beyond justice. So Christians shouldn't be known mainly as the justice people. That's minimalist. You start there, and then you go beyond. So Christ will be known in the culture when we treat people better than they deserve, not as they deserve. Amen.